We are continuing our series on Colossians 2, um, and it, it dawned on me at the end of worship there that uh, I bared false witness. There was no, uh, our service wasn't on the Bible app yet, so hopefully it should be on now. If you go to the Bible app, go to events, and uh, hopefully you'll find find it there. Uh, if, if not, most of what we're going to be reading today and, and talking through today is going to be in Colossians chapter 2. Um, just want to mention as a side note that this Friday, our family gained a teenager. Gavin turned 13 on Friday, and uh, happy birthday, son. Um, he's our... He's our oldest, and we are, we are so proud as parents of, of the young man Gavin is, and he's becoming. And uh, it just takes so much. I'm so proud of him, and, uh, and, and I'm, I think I deal with some pride there, but that's okay. I'm really proud of him. Um, so, so continuing in our series, this is our second week in Unrivaled. Um, in review, what's going on here is Paul is writing a letter from prison in Rome to a church that's located in what was in ancient times known as Asia Minor, which was in modern day Turkey. And he's writing this letter to a church that he's never been to. He didn't plant the church. Someone else did. It's a church he's never even visited. But it's being confronted with some real things that he's concerned about. There's, first of all, it's where it exists is heavily influenced by Hellenistic culture. If you look at the architecture there, if you look at uh, uh, the, the area around it, it reflects Greek architecture, it reflects Roman architecture, and with that, of course, comes the Greek and Roman gods, um, all this polytheism. But then, as with that as well is you've got through the diaspora, you've got the, the um, Jews that are living up there. And so this group of people called Judaizers have come in and they've started to influence this as well. And so there's this fusion with the gospel happen, happening. And can I tell you that there, there are some mashups that are good. There are some things that are good. Like, I didn't know what all the fuss was about with fried chicken and waffles. I didn't understand that. It seemed like a bizarre combination to me. And then I went one time and I was like, I'm going to try this. And it was the most incredible thing I had ever experienced. The savory and the sweet, and it's just like, and so now we go to breakfast somewhere, I'm like, I hope they have chicken and waffles. That's like my jam right there. But then there's, then there's other mashups which aren't so good. I'm looking at you, Hawaiian pizza. Come on. Hawaiian pizza is kind of an interesting thing. You, you, judging by its name, you know where it's from, right? It was actually invented in Ontario, Canada. Uh, and, uh, and being, being Canadian, you'd surmise that it was invented by a Canadian. Well, it's not. And you'd think, well, if pizza's Italian, it was invented by an Italian guy. Well, it wasn't. It was actually invented by a Greek immigrant that lived in Canada. And, uh, and he was inspired by the savory and sweet flavors of Chinese food. And, uh, and, and of course, all this comes together, and now it's the most popular pizza, you know where? In Australia. That's not a joke. That's all real. I, it's, it's a bizarre mashup. I don't understand it. Some people really insist on it. And they're, they're like, you just need to give it its fair shake. No, pineapple was not meant to be eaten hot. I'm just telling you. I like pineapple, but not. It's just, come on, people. We, need, we should have an altar call right now about that. But uh, the other fusion that Paul is warning, but the fusion that Paul is warning the church in Colossae about is, is this, this purity and completeness that they found in Jesus was being challenged by blending in these other religious obligations. Either sprinkling in Jesus to what they were already doing, just adding him in as an extra one of the gods, uh, kind of what was going on with this, with this, uh, this movement there, or, or just, uh, or adding other things to Jesus. What the Judaizers were saying was, you can worship Jesus, but you need to add on all this other Jewish law. There's all these other things you need to follow. You see, Jesus isn't all there is. There's more. And so, in chapter 1, Paul is affirming to the church that Jesus is everything you need. 
There's nothing more you need to add. You can't just add him to your life, but also there's nothing more that needs to be added to him. And so he's saying to the church, Jesus is everything. He's the first and the last. Nothing needs to be added. It's not enough also just to add Jesus. So we're going to take off now into chapter 2. And So let's start reading. We're going to read the first couple of verses of chapter 2. And it says this. Paul writes to them, he says, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea. Laodicea is a, is a city that's just a few miles away, just a short walk from uh, Colossae. And he says, and for the many other believers who, I have, who have never met me personally, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm getting just a touch of ring here, Rhonda, if you wouldn't mind bringing it down just a touch. So in, in, in chapter 1, Paul, Paul affirms all this and he, and he goes through this, but um, something we need to understand is when we're reading Colossians, and we're reading any book of the Bible, really, uh, the author didn't write in chapters and verses. They're like, chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 7. But rather, these were things that were added later for our benefit, so we can actually find things in there, right? So it makes it easy to locate things. So this, when we read Colossians, this was all one continuous flow of consciousness for Paul, right? He's writing and it's kind of flowing one thing into the other. And and so he's building on his sentiments that he talked about in chapter 1. And so he's warning them, don't get caught up in this mysticism that's going on or anything else that would shake your faith, but have complete confidence in God's plan that was Jesus himself. Every piece of wisdom, every piece of knowledge that you need to have is found in him. You don't need to find it in any other thing. There's nothing else that you can add that will add to it, but Jesus is all you need. And so continuing on then in verse four, he says, I'm telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow Him. Let your roots grow down into Him and let your lives be built on Him. And then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. So Paul here is imploring the church. He's saying, you need to have your roots grow down deep. You need to build your lives on Jesus. So he's telling them the basis of our identity is rooted in Jesus, is rooted in the person of Jesus. That is our full identity. If people ask you what Christianity is all about, what it gives you, it's this one thing. It's Jesus. Jesus is the basis of our identity. Paul expanded on this when we write in chapter 1. If we look back in verse 23, he says, But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away. Underline that in your Bibles. Everybody take out your pen. Take out your highlighter. If you're working with your cell phone, just highlight on the the screen. It's okay. Highlight that. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. So in chapter 2, he says, Be rooted Plant yourself on this truth of who Jesus is. And in chapter 1, he says, don't drift away. I used to live close to the beach in California. And I loved going to the beach with my friends. And we'd go swimming, we'd go surfing, we'd go bodyboarding. It was so much fun. And uh, often, the, I remember the first time this happened, I went out and was swimming. And I was just having a blast. Swim, 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 swim. And I thought, it's time to come in. And I swam to shore. And to my dismay, I didn't have very good friends because they all left. They were gone. And I started looking around and I was like, wait a minute, my stuff's gone. Where did it go? It was several blocks up the beach along with everyone else. 
Because as you're swimming in the ocean, as you're having so much fun, you don't realize that there's a current moving you along. And I got out of the water and I was like five lifeguard stands away from where I started. And it's a whole different area. There's different people on the beach, there's different streets, different houses. I was like, a totally different area because drift had occurred and it had moved me along. And Paul is warning them here. He says, don't let your faith drift. You see, drift is a slow and persistent process. I swam that whole time not realizing how far I had moved. I was having a blast in the ocean and didn't even realize how that persistent and slow uh, drift had occurred. And, and so most of us believers won't wake up one day and say, Hey, you know what? I'm no longer following Jesus. It's Thursday. I am now an agnostic. Or I'm now an atheist. Or, or you know, what happened? I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm, I'm a humanist. You know, those things don't happen just overnight, but rather like the erosion of a stone that sits in a river. This current comes over us when we allow our faith to be worn away. And before you know it, we're further than where we thought we were. And we, don't, we didn't realize, how did I get to this point? And so Paul is imploring of the church. He says, you need to be rooted in your confidence and in your knowledge of who Jesus is. And he says, you need to be so rooted, you need to be rooted so much so that you build your life up on him. That you actually build your life on him. Not just in creed, not just in the statements you say, not just in the wall art that you go to get at Hobby Lobby that says, thankful and blessed. (laughs) Now some of you are like, see, he's insulting Hobby Lobby. I knew there was something wrong with this church. Nice. No, it's, it's, I, I love the science in Hobby Lobby. We have some in our house. But it's more than platitudes. The priorities and the words that we share in conversation, it needs to be informed by these things. The relationships that we foster and the relationships we choose to have need to be informed by this. What we build our lives on. The jobs we get. The financial priorities we make. The, all these things need to be informed by the life that we build on Jesus. And your solar system's orbit has to circle around one sun. And I think we know which sun that is. <laughs> that was a kind of a pun I accidentally put in there. That's good. I'm going to write that down. Something uh, I think the Reformed movement really gets right is they affirm a constant need for repentance and confession. And I think that the confessing church is something we sometimes miss in, in, our, in our own movement, is the constant need to come back and say, Lord, I need to reassess. Where have I drifted? Where have I allowed um, things to, to move? I need to reaffirm that my foundation is built on Christ. So Paul goes on then, continuing in verse 8. He says, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. And here's verse 12, what we just read at the beginning of the service. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. 
You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. And then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. That's a big section of scripture, but praise God for that, first of all. What a powerful section of scripture. And Paul in this section right here is pretty brilliantly and yet somewhat graphically tying together this situation in which the Judaizers were trying to come in and push this uh, new rule on believers that they need to be circumcised. And so he's, he's pretty cleverly tying this together. He's saying, he's saying, oh, they're telling you you need to be circumcised? Let me tell you that Jesus has already spiritually cut away all of your sinful nature. When you, when you came to Christ, He cut all that sinful nature away. When you were baptized, it symbolized you're dying to that sinful nature and new life in Him. No more needs to be done. You don't have to have a physical procedure done. You don't have to go through uh, extra steps. When Jesus does His work, it's complete. And so he's, he's telling him this because Jesus' victory is complete. Jesus' victory is complete. Those that were baptized this morning, you were buried with Christ and you were raised to new life. The record of your sins has been canceled. The record of your sins has been wiped away. No longer, Paul says, the charges against us, it says, were nailed to the cross. Not just canceled. It's not just that the, 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 the charges against us were dropped. Like, oh, we didn't have enough evidence and they were dropped. No, it says our accusers, the things that would actually try to guilt us and shame us, the things that would try to remind us of our failures, the things that would try to remind us of our past, they have not just been disarmed, they've been shamed by Jesus. I love that. He shamed them. So when you feel guilt, when you feel this, this weight of, 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 of just suddenly like what, what's been forgiven and you're being reminded of your failures in your past and the enemy's trying to bring that back, remember, Jesus shamed it with what he did on the cross. He didn't just defeat it, he shamed it. And he wiped it away, completely away. And so we have this victory that's complete in Jesus' name. Complete victory in Jesus' name. And so Paul goes on here. He says, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths for these rulers or for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep following the rules of the world such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. We've read some lengthy sections of scripture, but this concludes this chapter, and here's what we need to see. What was going on here were these new followers of Jesus, these new believers were being criticized because they weren't observing all the feasts that everybody were. They weren't doing the holidays and, the, and the, all the steps that, they were, that were required of other people. And then on top of it, there was another group that we haven't yet mentioned that came in. So we've got the Judaizers, we've got um, the mystics, but then this other group came in called the Essenes. 
And the Essenes um, were, were share, is the same group, they, they have the same root from which we get the term asceticism. And asceticism, what is that? At its core, it's a word that means self-denial. And in its extreme form, it's even self-injury, it's inflicting wounds on yourself. So if you look back at verse 20 with me, he says, You've died with Christ and he's set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? You see, what was going on during this time was there was this pious self-denial that was happening. It was this, um, this religion of human achievement that was going on. It doesn't just look at ways... The, it, it was, it was, it, it's looking for ways that you can be more spiritual, more religiously woke, as it were, by self-imposing, like withholding from yourself, by withholding things from yourself. And, uh, and, and it was seen throughout, as you look at the history of the church, it really has progressed and continued. If you look at the monastic movement, you look at uh, uh, these diets of eating just rice and water. Um, they would wear the same clothes at times and not change them. They would live in tiny cells. They wouldn't get married. They would have no family, no social connections. Um, many monks wouldn't bathe in warm water because it could be considered relaxing and less pleasurable. And, and so they would withhold that from themselves. themselves. But their own suffering and, and ultimately would be a cause of pride. And so Paul sees this monastic movement of people holding, withholding things from themselves, things that they could enjoy. Um, I'm not going to touch. I'm not going to eat. I'm gonna, not going to do all of this. And, and it's progressed through time. We see groups of self-mortification. And I believe that it went back to Paul's day. Um, there's something called flagellants. And these are individuals who get whips. And they beat their own bodies raw. This happens still in, in, in many places in Latin America um, and, and in... Uh, in, in, in Asia, where they'll, they'll travel on their knees until their knees are bloody, and they'll whip their bodies until their flesh is just torn apart by trying to earn this, this, this uh, extra level of spirituality. Um, there's something here called a hair shirt, and it's what you think it is. It's They would weave uh, uh, animal hair, coarse animal hair, and even wa- bits of wire and things into a shirt, and wear that under their clothes so that it irritated and, and dug at them and, and, and made basically irritated their skin all day. There's something called a Silas belt, the inside of which has points that dig into your flesh as you go about your day and you can tighten it down to, to remind yourself of the pain you're going through for Jesus. And all these things are extremes. He's talking, Paul says, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these things are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. And you say, don't worry, Brent. Pastor Brent, I am not on Amazon right now looking up hair shirts so I can order myself one. Not a concern. That's good. But these are all extreme versions of what we can tend to do in trying to earn God's favor. This in itself was a man-made religion, and Paul says it's of no value. He says in itself, it's the sin of pride. You're trying to dictate your own destiny. You're trying to get God's attention. You're trying to earn God's love. You're trying to prove your sincerity. You're trying to, uh, you're trying to do all these things, but really your own mind is being deceived of its true condition. Your own mind is being conceived of its, deceived of its true condition, and, and, and Paul's going, you guys are missing the point. Jesus has done it all. Nothing you do yourself is going to make up for it. It's nothing you do yourself is going to be able to overcome what Christ has done. There's a, a, something that happened many years ago. A couple of guys named Homer and Langley Collier. They were two brothers, and they were sons of a respected doctor in New York. And around 
early turn of the century, in the 20th century, uh, the, the good doctor died and left his sons with his inheritance, a massive inheritance, a fortune, including a, a mansion in, in New York City. And so the sons moved into this mansion, but they chose a strange lifestyle. Uh, it was not consistent with the inheritance that their father had given them. They decided to live in conclusion. They locked the mansion up. They boarded up the windows. They padlocked the doors. They turned off all the utilities. They had no running water. They had no electricity. They had no sewer. And no one was seen coming or going from the house. For all appearances, it looked abandoned. But on March 21st, 1947, there was an anonymous tip that was called into the New York City Police Department. And they said, you're going to want to go check this out. I think someone died in there. And so the police went and they went to the front door and they couldn't get the front door open. And they couldn't figure out how to get in. So finally they went to the second story and climbed through a window to get into this house. And when they climbed inside, they found a macabre scene. In there they found Homer's corpse on a bed. He had died clutching a 27-year-old newspaper even though he had been blind for years. And for years they found that he and his brother had been hoarding junk. Their house was crammed full of broken machinery and auto parts and instruments and uh, boxes and appliances and folding chairs and rags and big bundles of newspapers that would be stacked up. And uh, they were, they, all this stuff was completely worthless. It was garbage. And they were what we would now call obsessive hoarders. Um, we've got TV shows dedicated to that. And, uh, and so the, this enormous mountain of debris was blocking the front door. So they, they got Homer out of there and they started clearing this out. And the investigators were forced to continue, continue using the upstairs window for weeks while they were still clearing out access to the front door. And finally they cleared a path. And three weeks later, after the first discovery, someone made the discovery of Langley's body, which was beneath a pile of garbage just six feet away from where Homer lied. You could lay. You could see how, how much garbage had to be in this place. If six feet apart was his brother, and it took him three weeks to find him. Langley had been crushed to death in a crude booby trap he had built to protect his junk from thieves. Eventually, the authorities had to haul out 140 tons of garbage from the house. The thing is, Homer and Langley make a sad but a fitting parable of the way many Christian people live. We have an inheritance that's through Jesus that's sufficient for everything we need. And yet we live with this self-imposed deprivation, this junk that we're piling up. We think that it's of some sort, sort of value. We think this is valuable. This is what is really going to take care of it. And we pile all this junk around in our lives, all this extra stuff. And like Homer and Langley, they, we become prison, prisoners in our own self-made prison. Our own efforts don't even come close to all that we have in Jesus. These men had a, a fortune in the, in the inheritance they had from their father, but yet they didn't even live it out with running water. And in the same way, we have an abundant inheritance from Jesus, but we don't live out that freedom. We don't live out that because we take on all this guilt of needing, I need to do enough. I need to earn this. I need to, to suffer in some way. And our own efforts don't even come close to all we have in Jesus. Paul echoes the sentiment in Philippians 3.8. He says, yes, everything else is worthless when, it com when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ. And you know what? Paul had every reason to think that he had it together. He had the first half of the Bible memorized, if not 
the, entire, uh, the, the entirety of, of their Torah memorized. He was part of one of the most religiously uh, conservative sects in, in the entire area. He, he knew all of the laws. He knew how to keep every rule. But he said, all this stuff, everything I've devoted in the entirety of my life to is garbage. And can I tell you that sometimes when you devote a whole lot of time to something, it's hard to let go of it. But I heard a statement once that said, just because you committed a whole lot of time to making a mistake doesn't mean you should still keep making it. And Paul realized all this time and effort I've put into it, all of this work that I've done is garbage. It's trash compared to what Jesus has done for me. The freedom I have in Jesus. Jesus is all that we need. In Jesus, there is salvation. In Jesus, there is forgiveness. In Jesus, there is victory. There is power in the name of Jesus. We have life in Jesus. And that's what Paul is calling them to. It's not through what we can do. It's only through him. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We are all infected and impure with sin. And when we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. Filthy rags. And I could go into depth about talking about what filthy rags it's referring to there. They didn't have toilet paper at the time. Filthy rags. But compared to what Jesus has done, wiping away our sin, washing us, and making us whole. I love what John 1.16 says. It says, from his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. Amen. Amen. Well, let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your mercy that's poured out over us. And that we have freedom that's in your name. In your name, Jesus, there is freedom, there's wholeness. And right now we respond to the grace and all that you have done for us. If I could have our elders and members of our prayer team come up and go to each side of the auditorium right now. I want us to have the opportunity to respond. We have plenty of time. We have lots of time right now to respond to what Jesus would say, what he would do this morning. First of all, I want to speak to those who have never given your life to to Christ. You saw the celebration. You saw the joy that we had in, in baptizing these this morning. You hear about what Jesus has done, that it's not through our own good deeds, that it's not about the things we can accomplish, but it's only through him. And you want that forgiveness. And you want that weight of feeling like, I can't do enough because the truth is we can't do enough. And you want to be able to cast that on him this morning. If that's you, and you're ready to give your life to Jesus, you want to say, I'm yours, Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. If that's you right now, raise your hand and raise it high. I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. All right, church, together, let's pray this prayer. Pray, say, dear Jesus. Thank you that you are all I need. There's nothing that needs to be added. My own goodness isn't enough. But it's only because of what you've done. And this morning I respond to that. I believe that you are the son of God. That you died for me. That you came to make me whole. I give you my life this morning. I choose to follow you and proclaim you as my king in your name. Amen. Amen. This morning, I want us to stand together. And I want to give this opportunity of response. It can be in response to what we just 
talked about this morning and maybe you've been carrying a lot of weight on yourself of I've got to earn something I've got to be good enough maybe it's something that's been projected on you by someone else and you've been living under the weight of expectation of God to be a good enough person and you need to respond to that and say Jesus I need I need to recognize that you've done it all that I have yes I'm called to live righteously a holy life but I've been carrying the weight of needing to be good enough to earning it and I need to just release that to you maybe that's you I want you to find one of these up here these uh, prayer team members and pray with them one of these elders one of these pastors Maybe you need healing. Maybe there's physical healing you need in your body. I want to invite you to come forward. Maybe you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You just want more of God. I invite you to come this morning. So I'm going to pray and we're going to respond because we have several minutes now to respond. Jesus, I pray right now as your church responds. We wouldn't waste this moment. We wouldn't let it get away. We wouldn't let pride stand in the way of what you would do this morning. Don't let our agenda busyness take away from what you would do this morning and right now we step forward and ask that you do miracles this morning as we seek your face amen amen come forward this morning let's pray let's spend some time with jesus
morning, I pray for your church. That we would live in freedom. That our lives would show the freedom that we have in Jesus. That we are not locked into a joyless journey of rules and regulations, but that we have been set free. And whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And we thank you, Father, that we have given, been given the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. For those that are weary this week, I pray that you would lift them up. For those that feel heavy burden, that they would soar on wings that like eagles, Lord. That you would restore them and renew them. That their spirits would be lifted, Lord. And that, Jesus, we would have joy for the journey. And that you'd give us profound and ordained opportunities to share the good news of Jesus in our world as we go. That we would never let an opportunity escape us to share what Christ has done in our own hearts, we pray. And we thank you for it, God. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you. New Life Church, have a blessed week. Go and be God's hands and feet everywhere we go.